It is now several weeks since we began to study through the three chapters in 1 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul addresses the subject of spiritual gifts. The three chapters constitute a single unit. They're not three separate chapters divided by the great 13th chapter on love. There is a tendency, isn't there, for people to think of that chapter in isolation from the other two. But chapters 12, 13, and 14 form a seamless unity, and that is certainly supported by the opening verse of chapter 14, which reads as follows. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now those are not two separate suggestions or proposals. Pursuing love on one hand and pursuing gifts that are going to be helpful to the church on the other hand. These are not two separate propositions. What Paul is actually saying here is pursue love by desiring the better spiritual gifts. In other words, chapter 14 is actually working out in practice chapter 13, the love chapter. And unless we understand that, we shall not understand the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians because it is, as I say, a practical application of chapter 13. So that's the first thing we need to keep in mind. And the other thing we have to take on board from these opening five verses is that prophecy is preferred to tongues, and that for a very clear reason, which is that prophecy, by edifying or building up the whole church, is a greater expression of love for the church than tongues can possibly be. Because tongues, we are told here, are for the individual. We are told that the one who prophesies speaks to people for their growth, encouragement, and consolation. But the one who speaks in a tongue, I quote, speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. And what Paul is saying here is that tongues speaking is really building up or edifying one's self. The speaker is building up himself. It is an expression of love, but it is an expression of self-love. Whereas the one who prophesies is building up the church, 
It is an expression of love for the church, for a multiplicity of people. And so that is why he says a little later on that the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Well, now, I'll come to deal with the chapters as a whole and do so under three headings to bring out the aspect that spiritual gifts must be used in love in order to apply and make love work, to put love to work, if you like. My three headings are, first of all, the problems of tongues, secondly, the power of prophecy, and thirdly, the permanence of preaching. And we'll look at those in turn. Now, you notice I say the problems of tongues in the plural. And there were in the church at Corinth a considerable number of such problems. The first problem, of course, we met at the beginning of Paul's address on the subject of spiritual gifts at chapter 12 and verse 1. He says, No man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Christ accursed. And he had obviously been told that this had actually happened. Otherwise, he wouldn't have mentioned it at all. And it appears that someone, almost certainly speaking in an unknown tongue, had cursed Christ without knowing it, because he didn't know what he was talking about. He didn't know what he was saying. And it's not difficult to surmise that this must have been done by a person who had been converted from a heathen sect, which itself practiced speaking with tongues. And in those days there were many pagan groups, sects, and mystery religions uh, who employed speaking with tongues. It wasn't just a Christian phenomenon. And one of these people had been converted and had unwittingly imported a pagan version of tongues speaking into the church. And this had caused great alarm at Corinth. Right at the end of chapter 14, Paul says, Do not forbid the speaking of tongues. Now, why should they want to forbid it? Why does Paul have to say that? Well, it's because some people in Corinth were so concerned about this false tongues speaking in which Christ was cursed, that they wanted to ban speaking in tongues altogether. And the apostle says, no, don't do that. Just keep a close watch on it. Control tongues speaking. The second problem with tongues speaking relates to its precise meaning. The word tongue throughout this chapter and elsewhere simply means language. 
And so in most cases, it was human languages that were concerned. Now, Chris Boriston helped me greatly when he said last week, as he expounded a passage from Acts chapter 2, where, of course, we read about the first New Testament use of tongues when the Spirit of God was poured out upon the disciples and they spoke in other languages. We are told quite explicitly there that those languages were human languages because all the proselytes who had come from many parts of the then known world, what we now call the Near East, understood what was being said. And they were amazed that it was being spoken in their native languages by people who could not possibly have known them. And Chris went on to show that in the other instances in the Acts of the Apostles where tongues were spoken, they were necessarily or by implication human languages. So the uniform testimony of Scripture in both Old and New Testaments is that speaking with tongues as a miraculous event is a gift of the Spirit and employed known human languages, though not necessarily known to the person speaking. But there is one exception, or one apparent exception, and we need to look at that. In chapter 13, verse 1, we read, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a crashing cymbal. It profits me nothing. That suggests that in some cases, tongues speakers were using languages unknown to men because they were supernatural languages, languages spoken by angels not by men. And that has given rise to the belief in charismatic circles that people could speak things that could not possibly be understood by anybody. And they say, well, they're speaking in the tongues of angels, so no one is going to understand what they are saying. It will just sound like gibberish. And Chris also pointed out, this was the case last week. If you haven't listened to either the sermon or the podcast of last week, then please do that, uh, because you'll find it very helpful on this point. Notice, however, that Paul does not say that anybody has actually spoken in the language of angels. He is saying, what if I could do it? It still would not profit me without love. And I suggest that he is employing a very common literary device called hyperbole. 
hyperbole, a Greek word used in the English language today, means throwing something up high beyond reason. And hyperbole is making an impossible claim in order to understand or underline a point. Saying something that cannot possibly happen, but is said simply to emphasize a point that is being made. We actually find an example right here in verse 2 of chapter 13, where he talks about having all faith so as to remove mountains, which of course reflects a hyperbole used by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 17 verse 20, where he says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Now, we know very well that no amount of faith is going to move a literal mountain. That's hyperbole. It's exaggeration to such a degree that everyone knows it is impossible and they understand that the device of hyperbole is being used. It's found frequently in the New Testament. A further example, John ends his gospel by claiming that if everything was written down that the Lord Jesus said and did, there would not be room enough in the world for all the books that would be written. That's hyperbole. Going over the top, there would be room enough in all the world to write down everything Jesus did and said. But John is claiming there wouldn't be. What is he doing? He is simply emphasizing that there was so much more that could be told and that he did not include in his gospel that Jesus said and did. Hyperbole, then, is an acceptable, common, and usually fully understood device in Scripture. And I think that when Paul talks about speaking in the languages of angels, he is simply using hyperbole. But, of course, it can be misunderstood, and some of our charismatic friends today think Paul meant it literally. Further evidence that tongues speaking involved speaking in known human languages, although they were not necessarily known to the person speaking, is found in chapter 14, verse 10, where Paul writes, There are doubtless many different languages in the world. Thus he is speaking of human languages. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. And so, with yourselves, this is still the apostle speaking, 
and so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And that demonstrates, doesn't it, that speaking in an unknown tongue does not mean speaking in a non-human language. It means speaking in a language that you do not know, although other people do know it. But they are foreigners to you, and you are a foreigner to them, because until the Spirit of God works in you, you had no human language in common. And there's a further point, of course, and that is that if some at Corinth were actually speaking in angelic languages, who would interpret them? Paul says later that if somebody speaks in a tongue in a meeting, then there must be someone else present to interpret that language. Otherwise, they must keep quiet. Now, if someone was speaking in a supernatural tongue, the interpreter would also have to know and understand that tongue and would have to do so before he attempted to interpret the original speaker. So the interpreter would become the original speaker or at least understander of the esoteric language. And then who would monitor the utterances of the interpreter? I think you can see that that gets you into a terrible conflict. And I think hyperbole has to be the only possible explanation of this matter. Well, then, we've already mentioned that tongues speaking builds up the individual, which is okay. Let's be clear. The apostle says, I wish you all were able to speak in tongues. We know, however, that everyone was not able to speak in tongues, because chapter 12 tells us that that is the case. The gifts of the Spirit were given out in a sovereign manner by the Holy Spirit. He didn't give the gift of tongues to everybody. And that signifies that the person who has that gift has the ability to build up himself. That's good, because the Spirit is only going to impart that gift to those who need it who perhaps lack confidence in their faith, or, uh, like the apostle, face specially fierce spiritual warfare and need to recharge their spiritual batteries frequently. So Paul tells us, I speak in tongues more than all of you. But immediately he adds, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding than 10,000 words in a tongue. Why? Because people will understand what I'm saying and be helped, comforted, and strengthened by it.
Let's move on to my second point, the power of prophecy. In chapter 14, Paul is comparing and contrasting two of the spiritual gifts. He mentioned a lot of other spiritual gifts in chapter 12, but now he's using these two gifts, tongues and prophecy, to illustrate how best to apply the principle of love in practice, and particularly in the worship meetings of the church. Now we have to understand that prophecy is not just teaching. It is revelation, new revelation. Look at verses 29 and 30. And there in verse 29 we read, quotes, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy, one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. But I just want to underline the word revelation. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, prophecy was revelation, not just teaching. Earlier, Verse 26 of chapter 14 reads, quote, When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Do notice that one person has chosen a lesson. A lesson. Now that's teaching, isn't it? We teach lessons. So we see revelation and teaching running side by side. They are different. They are completely different. For further proof of this, we need to go back to Ephesians, where the apostle is writing in chapter 4, verse 8, about the Lord Jesus Christ. But when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So he's talking about spiritual gifts. And a few verses later, in verse 11, he spells out certain spiritual gifts in terms of the people to whom those gifts were given. Christ gave the apostles. I quote again, Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. But each of these is a different gift. So that prophecy cannot be teaching because it is mentioned separately from teaching and pastoring. So what is prophecy? Look back to chapter 3, verse 5 of Ephesians, where Paul is writing about the mystery of Christ, which he says, quote, 
was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Although he is here referring to a specific issue, my point is that new revelation from God was being made to apostles and prophets, showing that New Testament prophecy was revelatory in nature, bringing to light divine truth not previously known. Nevertheless, we are told in 1 Corinthians 13 that, I quote, as for prophecies, they will pass away. They will cease. They will disappear. They were temporary provisions. But that is not true of teaching, as we shall see in our final section. It's only true of things which were needed at the time, but are no longer needed today. And both prophecy and tongues fall into this category. For, says this verse, quote, We know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect, the word perfect is better translated complete, but when that which is complete comes, the partial will pass away. I spent some time when we were looking at chapter 13, seeking to prove, I hope successfully, that the things that were destined to pass away were revelatory gifts, which were needed in the days before the New Testament appeared in a written form. But teaching and preaching do not pass away. The function of prophecies, therefore, was a temporary provision to edify, to build up the church while the New Testament was being written. It was a necessary provision because without New Testament truth, they could not build the church. To give just one example, without New Testament truth, you cannot properly understand Old Testament history, types, prophecies, and predictions. When we read the Old Testament today, we do so through the eyes of the New Testament. Without the New Testament, we couldn't do that. And those infant churches not having yet in writing the New Testament needed the prophets to inform them of New Testament truth so that they could grow and be built up during that first century. But the prophetic office passed away. Why? Because when the New Testament was finished, it was a complete revelation, whereas prophecies given in the local church 
one local church or another, could only be partial revelations, although they served an essential purpose. So I move to the third point, the permanence of preaching. Now, in one sense, you may say you've covered that already, and you would be right. But there are one or two things I want to underline about preaching. Prophecies, tongues, and knowledge would pass away, but preaching had to be maintained. We have Paul's injunction in Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 4 and verses 1 to 5. I'm leaving some words out in my quotation. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own actions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. What is he saying? He's telling Timothy to preach the word. That is Timothy's primary responsibility. And Timothy is to go on preaching the word as things get worse, as people stop appreciating that word or understanding that word. He's got to keep preaching. And particularly in those difficult times about to come, when you might think to some degree at least have already come to our Western world, it's got to go on. It's never going to stop. So preaching is ceaseless, whereas prophecy does cease. But there is an even more telling passage of Scripture I can use in Matthew 24, verse 14 where Christ is looking forward to the end times. And he says, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end comes. Close quote. It's got to be preached until every nation has heard it, and Christ returns to judge the world. Preaching has not become redundant, although unfortunately in some circles preaching is out of fashion, but it ought not to be. As the times get worse and more difficult, as it becomes increasingly difficult to find people who want to listen to the truth of God, we must go on preaching faithfully. And that brings me really to my final point. Today, I think we can all recognize that there are serious failures occurring in the preaching of the Word of God. 
I'm talking about failures in evangelical churches, not about other denominations or sects and groups. And by definition, evangelicals treat the Word of God as the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. What you find today in many churches is the tendency to preach in what I call a narrative fashion. The preacher takes a passage of scripture and simply works through it, repeating basically what the passage says about putting it into their own words, and perhaps explaining words at certain points. The sermon is essentially a narrative, and at the end, if you're lucky, you get an application of some sort. But narrative preaching will seldom present Christ in all his glory and redeeming work. For example, if you're preaching on an Old Testament passage which doesn't actually mention Christ, then since Christ does not feature in the passage, neither will he feature in your sermon. And yet we must preach Christ. Narrative preaching doesn't do that for a large portion of the Bible, mainly the Old Testament, but sometimes even the New Testament. I remember when we first started the campus church, as it was then, we heard about an Irishman who had been jailed for terrorism. He was a, a Protestant Unionist and had been jailed for being involved in an attack on some Republicans. In prison, he was converted to Christ. And when he was released, he thought and believed that God was calling him to the ministry. But no college, theological seminary, or church would touch him because he'd been in prison for terrorist activities. They just didn't want to know. He was a man being called to the ministry, but nobody was going to help him fulfill that desire. However, it so happened that Bill Clark, also a Northern Islander and my co-founder of the Campus Church, invited him to join us for a couple of years. He joined our small team here to learn his trade, as it were. Although he was a good speaker, he didn't have any preaching experience. So we were a bit horrified when he decided to preach through the book of Esther, which is the one book in the Bible that doesn't even mention God. To preach Christ from the book of Esther is not impossible, but it's difficult even for an experienced preacher. After a couple of well-presented sermons, it was clear that he wasn't preaching Christ. So I said to him, look, whatever else you say in your sermon, spend the last five minutes 
preaching Christ. He took that advice and became a very fine preacher. You see, preaching Christ requires a full and deep exegesis of the scripture in question. You cannot preach Christ using simply the narrative approach. You have to draw Christological truth out of the scripture. You have to let the scripture speak. You have to use the New Testament to interpret and understand the Old Testament and even to add depth to the New Testament truth you are already expounding. But why this insistence to preach Christ? I'll let the Apostle Paul answer that question by taking you back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians, where starting in chapter 1, verse 21, he writes, For since the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul preached Christ's crucifixion. And that is what we must do also, because that is the means God employs to save and reconcile sinners to himself. That is our priority. If we do not preach Christ in all his fullness, his atoning work, his resurrection, his ascension, his glory, and his future coming, we are not doing our job. And when I say preach, I'm not just talking about the person who stands behind the pulpit. Every believer individually can gossip the gospel with family and friends, with neighbors and colleagues, and whenever God gives an opportunity. And that is what we all must do.